Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Live Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we continue our reflections into Special Topic Thursday, reflections which are really more responses to your questions. What I've done on Thursday is set aside 30 minutes to respond to your very specific questions. This evening, as I noted the other day, is going to respond to your question Where is the biblical foundation for the Catholic teaching and understanding on the Pope? So this evening, my friends, we are going to be spending some time in the Gospel of Matthew, most especially uh, chapter 16, and also the prophet Isaiah. You've heard me say on more than one occasion the importance of interpreting Scripture with that principle of typology. What does that word mean? Well, typology is what it sounds like, the study of types, more specifically how persons places, and even institutions in the Old Testament prefigure, foreshadow, anticipate, right, the New Testament, how Christ is the fulfillment to the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament. In typology, what we are doing essentially is going deeper so as to appreciate how God has worked in salvation history, the drama that is salvation history, with the backdrop that when you read the Old Testament and New Testament, what you're really doing is reading the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So then what you're really doing is reading about God's love affair with man, a love affair that is caught up in this covenant drama, a drama that is not about this is yours and this is mine, but I am yours and you are mine. This is the essence of of what sacred scripture is about. So to respond to your question about better understanding the foundations, biblical foundations for the Catholic understanding and teaching on the Pope, we are going to look at the unity of the Old and New Testaments, how essentially we are made to read sacred scripture as one single divine drama. All right, that being said, let us go to the Gospel of Matthew. In the opening verse to the Gospel of Matthew, we have what I believe to be quite fascinating. And what do I mean by that? Well, you don't open up the Gospel of Matthew and read, repent, believe, the kingdom of God is at hand. No, what you read is Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And then this toledoth in the Hebrew, this genealogy of where Christ comes from. That doesn't sound very uh, gospel-like to me, or at least in its more conventional sense. Why would Matthew busy himself detailing our Lord's genealogy? Well, he's doing it because of who he's writing to. He is writing to a Palestinian Christian Jewish audience. And my dear friends, (laughs) they had the Old Testament on their fingertips. In point of fact, Every Jew by the age of 13 had the Old Testament all but memorized. What does that mean? Well, think about that, my friends. If you had the Old Testament memorized, you would be familiar 
with not only all things as they are related to the Old Testament, but also how Christ might fulfill the Old Testament. Now, I know for some of us, this might be hard to understand. I mean, come on, really, Joe, did they have the Old Testament memorized? In the first century, if you were 13 years old, you knew your Old Testament. And I don't think it's so far-fetched to believe, really. I, I was talking about this when I was teaching junior high, and I remember on one occasion, a 13-year-old right, raised his hand and said, well, I just don't believe that, Mr. H. And it's interesting because as he had raised his hand, I was remembering that that morning by his lockers, he and his buddies were quoting uh, The Simpsons. And I thought to myself, okay, I'll just put myself out there, do a little exercise. I called him and his buddies forward. They thought they're all macho going to the front of the class. And so I asked them, all right, guys, tell me about last night's Simpsons episode. And they did not hesitate. They took up almost 12 to probably 15 minutes worth of class time to give me almost verbatim the episode of The Simpsons from the previous night. And so I told them to sit down, and then I asked the class, what just happened? And the students replied. They watched The Simpsons episode last night and talked about it a lot. Exactly. Brothers and sisters, what you feed grows. In antiquity... If you were a faithful Jew, the Old Testament was your livelihood. You not only read it, and you not only spend time with it, it was your livelihood. Your livelihood. So you were going to have it on your fingertips. So when we think that memorizing something so massive is impossible, we have to draw back, take a step back, and think about it again. And even if we didn't have it memorized to the very verse. We certainly knew the essence of it. Matthew knows this. He understood that what he was writing was going to be illuminated by the Old Testament. So he purposely draws on Old Testament imagery to magnify the message of Jesus and who he was and what he came to establish. Very important to any understanding and teaching that comes to us from the gospel of Matthew. I mean, Consider, my friends, the very rich mosaic typology, that is how Moses prefigured Jesus Christ. In the story of Moses, we know what? That there was a wicked decree by Pharaoh that all Hebrew male children under the age of two must die. Well, what does Matthew talk about? Does he not highlight a similar wicked decree, and in this case given by King Herod, that all Hebrew male children under the age of two must die. How about the fact that (laughs) Moses was saved through Joseph's dream? Was not Jesus saved through another dream which led to another flight into Egypt? Do we not read in the story of Moses that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights? Do we not read specifically in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights? Matthew is very intentional. He wants his audience to come to appreciate that Jesus here is a new Moses. We next see Moses after his fast, giving the law of the old covenant where? But on a mountain. What about our Lord? 
out from his fasting, do we not see him giving the law of the new covenant on a mountain? Matthew is going into how Jesus is a new Moses, that his audience might begin to grasp the significance of who this man is. So Matthew would want us to see that just as Moses hands the baton to Joshua to lead the people to the promised land, so we are to see Jesus as a new Joshua, Yeshua, right? God saves. God saves. Now, to get to the heart of the question, we are dealing with more than just a new Moses, but also a new David. I spend those first 10 minutes talking about Jesus as a new Moses and how to interpret the old in light of the new and the new in light of the old, because I want us to understand and appreciate if we are going to grasp the significance of Matthew chapter 16, we have to sink ourselves deeper into the gospel of Matthew. And so we do. Remember, Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of David. One of the great themes, if not the chief theme to the gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is the son of David and that Christ came to establish the kingdom of David. You see, Jesus received the title son of David eight times in the gospel of Matthew reinforcing that the kingdom of David all these years later is now present. Here it would be important to recall that all-important passage from 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 to 17, which is the great covenant established between God and David through the prophet Nathan. The covenant that will not only last for an age, a hundred years, two hundred years, but what do we read in 2 Samuel 7 verses 12, 13, 14, but for all eternity, forever. Imagine, my friends, if you were an Israelite and you knew 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 17, that God said to David through Nathan, I will establish my covenant with you forever. From your line, I will establish a dynasty forever. Now think about those verses, those words, in the light of now verse 1, Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of David. And all throughout the gospel of Matthew, we are hearing the son of David time and time again. And so with that backdrop, <laughs> that extensive backdrop, let us go to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. If you want to Turn your Bibles to Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples 
to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay, so again, some rich, rich verses there, and I do want to go through these verses to just appreciate each one for what it is. First of all, this phrase, I will build my church. My dear friends, this isn't (laughs) your church, all right? This isn't my church, but when Jesus says my church, that means that it's Christ's church, okay? We are talking about God's sovereignty. Cells change in the body, but keep the same personality. It is the same with the church. Christ is the personality in the church despite the change of personnel, okay? I will build my church. What about the word church itself? Ecclesia, I know there are some critiques that say, well, are you going to tell me that although church is only used one or two times, Christ here is speaking of the Catholic Church? Well, this is why we are spending time this evening responding to the question and why I talk about the importance of the Old Testament backdrop, because it is only in the light of its context that we can come to understand the meaning of church. First of all, that church in the Latin ecclesia means assembly of believers, assembly of believers. Interestingly here, this word has an Akkadian root, which can mean temple or palace. So the ecclesia of Christ is a new temple, a new palace, if you will. God wishes to make his unifying church visible and restore the Old Testament Israel, the Old Testament assembly of believers. In the Hebrew, the Old Testament kehal. Okay, how about bar Jonah? What does that mean? Well, literally translated, new Jonah. Peter is a new Jonah. What was the role of Jonah? What did he do? But he restored the hopes of, of the lost people. Here, Peter is restoring the hopes of the lost people. And what about this name change? It's very important to understand that throughout history, we have seen name changes. Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, Jacob to Israel, Saul to Paul. With these name changes, what do you see but an elevation of status in salvation history? So is the same with Simon to Peter. Peter is the first pope. Peter's name in the Greek is what? Cephas. This is an allusion to Caiaphas, who was the high priest of the temple. There's a play on words here, huh? Because Peter is the new high priest in the new temple. What about this verse, verse 18, Petros? a Greek masculine noun that means rock or stone. Interestingly, in the Aramaic, the word kepha is the equivalent of Peter and denotes sizable rock, one that is suitable for building upon it a foundation. In Peter's case, Jesus establishes him as the foundation stone of the new covenant church. So just as the temples of the Old Testament were built upon a great stone, you can read about that in 1 Kings 5:17 and Ezra chapter 3 verse 10. So does Jesus build his New Testament church upon the foundational rock of Peter. This is also echoed in Revelation chapter 21 verse 14. How about this binding and loosening? In the Greek, here there is a very rare Greek construction. 
It is a future periphrastic tense. It employs an understanding of a completed heavenly action while denoting a present future continual action coming to earth to heaven as a result of earthly mediation. So there is some fascinating Greek here that when you spend time with it, it really brings insight into what is going on in these verses. But again, as I've already said, you cannot even begin to appreciate the drama of these verses without the Old Testament. And so we turn to Isaiah chapter 22. So if you want to flip your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 22, I will go ahead and start with verse 20. And let me set the stage here. Here you have uh, Hilkiah, King Hilkiah, inserting someone into a position of authority to oversee his kingdom. What you have going on in Isaiah chapter 22 is essentially an illustration of how the kingdom of David operates. So this is verse 20, Isaiah chapter 22, verse 20. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your girdle on him and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And listen here, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a sure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. Did you hear those verses? So here you have keys being given to someone who is to reign over a kingdom, in this case from Hilkiah to Eliakim. Do we not see Jesus Christ giving Peter keys? You see, my friends, Eliakim essentially was to operate as a prime minister ruling over the kingdom, in this case, of course, the kingdom of David, while always still under the authority of King Hilkiah. So is the same with Peter. He has been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven here on earth. He is to govern, if you will, but always under the authority of the king. And why do I say authority? Well, what do you hear in those words? Shut and open binding and loosening. Just as Hilkiah gave the authority to Eliakim to shut and to open, so Christ gives that same authority to Peter. As we read, whatever you bind, I will bind. Whatever you loosen, I will loosen. So you have King Hilkiah entrusting his authority to Eliakim in the same way Christ was entrusting his authority to Peter, and continues to entrust his authority to the Pope. Remember that periphrastic tense, that very rare Greek construction, that future periphrastic tense, how it employs an understanding of a completed heavenly action while denoting a present future continual action coming to earth as a result of earthly mediation. So in summarizing the link between Isaiah 22 and Matthew 16, just as King Hilkiah in the kingdom of David hands the keys to Eliakim to govern God's kingdom, so does Christ the king in the kingdom of David 
hand the keys to Peter to govern his kingdom here on earth in the Catholic Church. Let us remember that the Davidic kingdom operates as a royal cabinet with the king giving the authority to the prime minister to handle the day-to-day affairs and admit people into the royal presence. This is why, my friends, it is so important to understand the Old Testament backdrop so as to better understand the new. Why did I spend time talking about Moses and how Jesus is a new Moses? Because these are seedlings to better appreciate the significance of not only how the first century thinkers were reading this text, but also how we are to appreciate the historical context, getting into the mind of the first century thinker, which in this case should always have us reading the Old Testament. So when you ask me, how is it possible that the word church is only used one or two times in the Gospel of Matthew and that be the Catholic Church? Well, now you can begin to appreciate what was going on in that exchange between uh, Jesus and Peter. There's something else here that I believe is relevant to this question, and it has us applying once again this principle of typology. In Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, we read, you will be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Remember, the term pope literally means papa, father, right? Peter was the first father to the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem, the restored kingdom of David. Peter is, we could say, a new Abraham. Remember, when it comes to typology, it's just not how persons, places, and institutions prefigure Jesus Christ and the church he came to establish. We also see other links. And in this case, we see a very distinct link between Abraham and Peter. I mean, consider both are blessed by God. Out from a reading of the letter to the Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8, we know that they both responded with heroic faith. Both receive a divine mission, a rare divine mission. Both receive, again, what I've already noted, a significant name change. If you're to go to Isaiah chapter 51 verse 2, Abraham is what? A rock. So both are called rock. Genesis uh, chapter 22 verse 17, Abraham is assured victory at what? The gate. Did we not just read that Peter will be assured victory at the gate? And of course, both are considered to be fathers to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Yes, so in many ways, my friends, Peter is a new Abraham. And we ought to appreciate this because of the significance of what transpired in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. Okay, and I know this might be a lot for us to take in. What I might suggest, my friends, is for you to go back and to carefully read, once again, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. Do it with a careful reading of Isaiah 22, verses 20 to 22. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 17. Go back to the opening chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And yeah, if you have time, carefully read how Jesus Christ is a new Moses. That was more than just sideline periphery stuff, my friends. I think it is very, very important that we understand what Matthew was trying to do, that we might better understand what God wants us to see. We can never disregard 
the literal sense when we interpret Scripture. Certainly, we can break open the biblical text and be inspired to be a better person, for sure. But if you want to get the fullness of the text, as we have been talking about, we have to roll up our sleeves, work in the tall grass, and get into that literal sense, get into that historical context, get into that cultural milieu, if you will, of who, in fact, Matthew was writing to. And then in the light of that, with that as its foundation, you get into the spiritual sense, you get into the significance of how God was working in salvation history that only can be grasped in and through that principle of typology. Okay, I am looking up at the clock and we are out of time. If you have any questions, comments, observations, please do not hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com, or you can go to my website at joholcraft.org, spelled J-O-E-H-O-L-L-C-R-A-F-T dot org. Those can be questions, comments, and observations about what we talked about this evening, or it can be about anything as it relates to the Christian and Catholic faith. Or maybe you want to talk about your own journey and walk with God. That would be fine. Over the course of these last 10 years, I've received emails from you, emails from people outside uh, this country, this country, the United States of America, and wanting to talk about more personal things. That is fine. I, I always enjoy a good dialogue, a good conversation within the context of the greatness of our Christian faith. All right. With that, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening. And we say gift because that's what it is, a very real gift that we have the opportunity to reflect into the richness and beauty of your inspired word, words that indeed should call us out to be a better version of who you are calling us to be, that we might be just not strengthened, but on a day-to-day -day basis nourished in our faith and our spiritual walk with you, that we might begin to see as you want us to see. So we spend time addressing this all-important question about your exchange with Peter, mindful that you ask us the same question, each and every one of us, who do you say that I am? And Heavenly Father, give me, give all of us the grace to say with Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that with our very lives we might proclaim it in word and deed. Amen. And as always, we turn to our mother Mary as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.